I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up unto the house of the Lord. The famous refrain of Psalm 122, verse number 1. We've each been blessed already with these lovely songs that we've lifted our voices together in singing. The opportunity not only of fellowship with each other, but more dramatically and more importantly, the opportunity to enter into the very presence of God by way of proper worship done in spirit and in truth today. We're certainly delighted for this Lord's Day morning that God has blessed us with, allowing us to come together to offer worship and adoration to Him. As you probably have noted in the bulletin already, the title of the lesson today is taken from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, and it is the wording I have on the wall to my left. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. I would invite each of us for the next few moments this morning to think somewhat carefully and also somewhat amazingly about the nature of the preaching of the cross. By way of introduction, or at least some immediate thoughts, isn't it interesting to contemplate how often the symbol of the cross appears? We see it on jewelry. We often see it beside roads in terms of a memorial to those who've lost their lives, perhaps in an automobile accident or otherwise. And yet as we think about the appearance of the cross, we understand that to the Christian it's far more than just a symbol. It's far more than a piece of jewelry and it's far more than an opportunity to think about someone who has passed away. The word cross appears 27 times in the original New Testament. And in those appearances, we find such a dearth of meaning, such a wealth of appreciation. For the next few moments, let's look at what some of those appreciations are, the preaching of the cross. As we begin that, we notice in Paul's statement there in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. The first thought, in fact, that I would wish us to consider is this one. Paul on that occasion dramatically said that the cross is a testimony and it very simply is the presentation of the power of God. We understand so well that God's power is manifested in so many ways about us. In this natural world, it is so abundantly witnessed and seen. We understand that from the earliest testimonies of the book of Genesis, we find that God's amazing power is seen. We remember those six days of creative activity in which He took what was not here and not only spoke it into existence, but gave it an order. And He gave it to where it is not chaotic and it is not confusion. Our God does all things well. Day number one, we remember the reality of light. And then came the firmament. And then the dry land appeared on day three, plant life came as well. Day four, there was the reality of the heavenly bodies such as the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day number five brought us to appreciate life in the oceans as well as in the air. Day number six, land-dwelling creatures and then the human family. In fact, Genesis 2-7 perhaps as a highlight states it in the following way. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. There's no question about God's creative activity. And yet, as we give thought to the power found within that, how often do the sacred scriptures remind us 
that by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Hebrews 11 verse 3. The nature of God's power is manifested there. Notice that Paul says there's something even more significant. The physical things about us is one thing. Spirituality is something else. And we find in the cross the greatest statement of God's power. In the cross. Some of those thoughts on that slide point us also to verse 18. The preaching of the cross, the word of the cross, the message of the cross. You'll notice that to those that perish, they treat it as foolishness. They choose to ignore it. They choose to treat it with contempt. They choose to look into it far less deeply and with great maturity as they ought. And so it comes that they do not enjoy its blessings. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to those that are saved, it's the power of God. We find in the cross the greatest manifestation of His power because those matters of spirituality, those matters that are in fact of the greatest import are those which are not physical. As Paul reasoned with the Ephesians in Ephesians 6 verse 12, after highlighting to them the need to put on the whole armor of God, it was this reason that he gave, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places, against the rulers of the powers of this world. We wrestle, you see, against that which is so powerful and against that which is so strong. So strong that your soul and mind could end up in a devil's hell forevermore because of it. But it's the preaching of the cross by which we can be freed from the shackles of sin, it's the preaching of the cross that allows one to realize life here with hope of life hereafter. How strong and powerful is that? Although none would question, at least those in the right mind, the power seen in God's creation. It's only the fool that says there's no God, Psalm 14.1. Those that appreciate that, though, still are different than those that appreciate the power of the cross. Many, it would seem, may wear a cross as a piece of jewelry. And maybe they're even aware of what the Lord did there. But do they deeply understand it? And have they applied it to themselves? Have they, in fact, given over complete control of their life to the one who died for them? Do they thus see in the cross all the ultimate meaning that the God of heaven had in mind? Some of those continuing thoughts on that slide point us to the reality of this. In 1 Peter 2, verse 24, speaking about the nature of the cross, there Peter referred to it as a tree. And he said that he, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. We then see that the cross was the place in which the sins of Randy Bybee appeared. Although I wouldn't come into this world for centuries and centuries later, my sins were already there. The Lord paid the price for them. The preaching is the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to those that are saved, it is the power of God. May we never become so desensitized that we don't see in the cross a remarkable aspect of our sin and the great reality of what Jesus did to take care of it. 
the preaching of the cross. When Paul entered the city of Corinth and he proclaimed the grandeur and the greatness of that message, he wasn't ashamed of it. It wasn't one that he, in fact, withheld from them. He would say in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, and also verse 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Though Paul was a very learned man and was able, to no doubt, to speak for hours at length on any number of subjects, he said that it was his determined intent to know nothing except Christ Jesus and His crucifixion. Now those in Corinth, we well remember from history, were people who often desired to discuss many new things and new theologies and new theories and new suggestions and new philosophies. Paul said there's only one that matters. It's the reality of the cross and what Christ accomplished there. The preaching of the cross to those that perish foolishness. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, the cross shouts so amazingly about God's desire for us to be right with Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It continues to be a very difficult sight. When we see someone involved in tragedy, maybe someone's house catches fire and a life more or one or more is lost in that fire. It breaks her heart to think about someone burning to death. Christ came, and the cross is our thoroughfare to get out of hell. It is our channel, it is our means whereby we can avoid it. Not because of any merit we have done, but because of what Christ did at the cross. We often sing songs that highlight the cross recounting in our mind the features and the events that took place there. Perhaps you've seen movies in which the cross was depicted. Perhaps that you've seen instances and images and television pictures where events about the cross were portrayed. The cross was a one-time event. There might be many who have died on something like a cross, but there was only one Christ Jesus, and only one time He suffered on that cross, and only once He gave Himself for us. That cross was a unique event in all the history of, human, of the human family. How special it was. How moving it was. How compelling it continues to be. Might I ask, as we think about all of that, what about your appreciation of it and mine? Do you and I look upon it as simply a cute religious symbol? Or do we see in it something that Paul hinted at here? It truly is a manifestation of the power of God. God's power. Although in the natural world His strength is seen, what about the power in the spiritual realm? To cleanse sin, to remove it, to allow a person to be sanctified saintly and holy. The cross makes that a possibility. And in fact, Christ shed His blood for that to be a reality. As you can see, the preaching of the cross that Paul had in mind to the Corinthians was not something he withheld from them, but rather it was an issue that he directly brought before them and challenged them to consider it and to in fact obey it. As you can see, this preaching of the cross only leads us to wonder what else might the cross and its preaching bring to us today. May we turn to yet another passage.
And notice what else the cross brings to us. Let's build to a consideration of another passage in just a moment. As we shall see shortly, it is the cross by which we are reconciled to God. That's a rather lengthy word, but the idea is somewhat simple. Two parties that have been separated due to one reason or another. Some kind of matter has in fact distanced them one from the other. We often realize the importance of reconciliation. Two parties that are in disagreement, two individuals that no, that no longer get along. We often see the need for reconciliation. It all starts with this thought of separation. Separation can so often be a difficult thing, can't it? When you and I are faced with the passing of a loved one and that separation that follows, we understand the void that's often left in our life. We do know that separation is highlighted in the second chapter of James. It is something described as that one has barely been appreciated as separation between the spirit and the body. As you think about the nature of separation, isn't that what sin does? Sin separates an individual from the God who made him or her. In the days of the long ago, in that book of Isaiah, we find, in fact, in such a tremendous and direct way, God through Isaiah had these words to say, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid His face from you, that He will not hear. We find in particular in verse number 2, their iniquities, the iniquities of which Israel was guilty, the transgressions, the violations of God's law that they had in fact accomplished. They were guilty of those things, and the inspired prophet noted, those have separated between you and God. You'll notice one of the consequences, they've hid His face from you that He will not hear. In other words, those hearts that are overflowing with wickedness, those hearts that in fact have not come to the Lord, God through Isaiah says, I won't hear them. Aren't we reminded in, in a passage like that one that the message of sin is so very clear. It does produce a separation. It causes us to no longer be in a position in which we can enter into the realms of the presence of God. We are distanced from Him. It is important to notice it's not that He has driven Himself away from us. We have moved ourselves away from Him. Therefore, we are the ones in need of being reconciled to Him. It's not that He needs to be reconciled to us. That is, in fact, one of the points of the sacred scriptures, isn't it? In Romans 6 verse 23, we see on that occasion that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When death is mentioned in the sacred text of the Bible, it's a discussion of something that involves separation. We notice that our sin separates us from God. It brings spiritual death upon us and causes us to no longer be in a right position and state with Him. Because of that, we notice a need for reconciliation. Something needs to be done. I wonder in what way the New Testament leads us to appreciate that reconciliation. After discussing these points, perhaps James put the final thought on that idea. 
when in James 1, beginning in verse 13, he said, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There is that mentioned again of death. Because of all that, look at the idea before us. Every individual, man or woman, slave or free, old or young, all of us face the reality of sinfulness. All of us face the reality of temptation. All of us face that separation from God. There is no one that is not guilty of such sin. What then might we say? No wonder we can turn to verses like Ephesians 2 verse 16. Let me invite you to turn there with me. We'll notice one of the statements the inspired Apostle Paul made about this reconciliation and the beautiful truth that's found within it. In the midst of that chapter, Paul put it in language like this. I'd invite you to begin reading with me in verse 13. But now is Christ Jesus, or now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Mention is made about individuals who had been at a distance. They had been far removed. They were no longer in the confines of fellowship with God. Verse 14, For he, speaking of Christ, is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. We find in the reality of the cross that key element in which all are reconciled unto God. That's the word Paul used. He was speaking about Gentile and Jew, all classes, and each enjoyed through the cross and the blessings of it, reconciliation to God. It is still an amazing thing in many ways to consider, isn't it? And truly profound to think that we at a distance, due to our sin, and yet God stooped to the point of offering Himself on the cross. And in that offering, you and I can finally have those sins forgiven. We can be reconciled to Him. As Paul made that point here, notice again with me the language of verse 16. And that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. The cross is the agency whereby this reconciliation was accomplished. It was the thing in which, in fact, we see the reality of it come to pass. When we recount the gospel accounts, we remember that many things led up to the cross. There were the events in the Garden of Gethsemane, the painful difficulties in which He prayed, and it was, as it were, that drops of blood fell from His brow. We recall that the scenes also of those trials on the night before, all of that was arduous, and all of it was very difficult. That morning, we will remember that the time came, there were even greater difficulties as they put a crown of thorns upon His head and as they scourged Him. And the difficulty surrounding that was so notable, and yet Paul still said that it was by the cross that you and I enjoy reconciliation. 
when we reflect on what happened somewhat around 20 centuries ago now, that outside Jerusalem, a city thousands of miles from here, in fact, all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, on the other end, if you please, of the Mediterranean Sea, there was a man, but not just a man, the Son of God, who was nailed to a cross. And in the shedding of His blood and in the offering He made that day, you and I, all these moments and centuries later, can be reconciled to God. It's no wonder we continue to cling so dearly to that cross. Because notice, it is the only means whereby we can have that enmity slain. The thing that separated us from God can be taken away and removed. The cross. To this point in the lesson, we've seen the beauty of reconciliation and the greatness of the power of God. What else is in store for us? As you'll see in John 12, verse 32, on one occasion, Jesus made this monumental statement. He said, And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. That was a statement in which He was looking forward to that occasion when He would be lifted up, hanging, if you please, there between heaven and earth on a cross. He did say, I'll draw all men unto me. It is still a message that is so inviting. He clings and calls each one to come. In fact, that's one of the last statements in all the Bible, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. He invites, but that takes us back to 1 Corinthians 1.18. There are some who consider it foolishness. There are some who, in fact, consider it as contemptible. Some who look upon it as merely unimportant. The inspired writer said they will perish. This is the only means whereby you and I could be reconciled to God. As you can see, these two lessons perhaps only invite us to consider another one. In addition to the power of God and in addition to reconciliation, perhaps our mind races to the Colossian letter as well where we see yet other benefits to the preaching of the cross. I would invite you to think with me for just a moment about these. That law of Moses, for example, that had been in such effect for so long, Beginning in Exodus, the 20th chapter, we read about that law which God gave through Moses to the children of Israel. It was a law that involved many realities. It involved many obligations. On Sunday mornings, we've been studying in the Bible class about the offerings. The burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the trespass offering, the sin offering, and others will yet come. And in all the while, as we have looked upon them, we find in them that they all pointed to and converged to the reality of what Christ was going to accomplish at the cross. Doesn't that then remind us of this? That old law of Moses, as effective as it was for those 15 centuries, we notice that the inspired writer was quick to point out some things to us. That law was against us. It was contrary to us. I'm reading from Colossians, the second chapter, verse 14. I would invite you to look at some of the statements Paul made on that occasion. Colossians 2, verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. There's mention yet again of the cross and something that took place at that time. 
as you can see, that law of Moses is there said to be contrary to us. It is beneath the dignity of the Christian system. That law, again, as it was the presentation of God for centuries, it was not the superior covenant. It had its faults and it's had its shortcomings. It had its failures, if you will. The Galatian letter will devote much attention, as well as the Hebrew one, to a discussion of that idea. May we simply at this point say this, that law was both imperfect and incomplete. All those individuals that lived throughout those centuries, they had been given hints that there was a better law coming, a more superior one, a perfect one, and one that would in fact not have the shortcomings of this one. When Christ came, He brought that better law. He brought the perfect one. Did He not say in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, about the greatness and the perfectness of the law that was His law? Did He not speak in other passages about the fact that this law is in fact perfect? Hebrews 8, verse 6. I wonder then when did that other law cease to be? When did it cease to be effective? Paul here said, took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. When you and I give thought to the cross, God's power seen and the idea of reconciliation taught. But one more time, we notice something else. That old law and all that went with it, its imperfections in terms of dealing with sin, the nature of what it taught concerning relationships and the ultimate truths that we find in Christ. With every nail pounded into that cross, the old law was closer and closer to being done away with. Paul said it was nailed to the cross. When you and I then read in the New Testament, we understand that Paul and the others who preached and taught so powerfully brought to understand that that old law was taken away and we do not live beneath it today. It is then sad that there are still those who cling to some aspect of it as if it still is the law of God, for they run roughshod over the cross. They have turned their back on the cross if they think that the old law is still in force, any part of it. Every bit of it was nailed to the cross. When they put our Savior on that cross, nailing the nails into His feet and into His hands, not only were they nailing Him to the cross, they were nailing the old law to it too. For that old law was done away with. In its force, it was gone. We find that new law then coming into effect with all the perfectness which the old law lacked and all the completeness which the old law had failed to present. How thankful, how great, and how marvelous is that new law. As you and I give thought to the preaching of the cross... How do you suppose that various and sundry of the first century heard the fact that that old law was nailed to the cross? Those Jews that had lived beneath that law and now they hear Paul preach the old law is nailed to the cross, no doubt many of them responded in shock and in practical disbelief. You and I live several centuries this side of that event. It still doesn't take away though that as we study that Old Testament set of scriptures, and appreciate what God decreed then and how much greater He has decreed now. May we ever be thankful that the cross is not just a symbol. 
It's far deeper and far richer than that. Not only does it show God's power in your life and mine, it took that old law away. Perhaps there's one final thought about the effect of the cross. In addition to taking these things away that we have seen, it also allows us to appreciate this. It can still be an issue involving a matter of great persecution. We find in more than one text in the New Testament that the cross did lead to problems for individuals. I say that because in Galatians 6 verse 12 we encounter the following passage. I'd invite you to read it with me as Paul referred to the events of his own life and those of the Galatian era. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. There were those in that era to which Paul wrote who were purposefully giving up Christianity and the cross because they knew it was going to bring persecution. They knew it would bring difficulty and hardship and they were unwilling to face that. They would rather renounce Christ than to deal with the persecution. Paul, in fact, taught them in that chapter as well as others that such was such a foolish decision because it's only in Christ that you have reconciliation and it's only in Christ that can be, you can be brought near to God. Might I invite us to think too that there still can be persecution because of the cross. You and I have seen it in our lives. Individuals who look upon us with disdain, who look upon us with not only a degree of question, but often questions that come with insults, questions that come with misunderstandings. Questions come that was sometimes blasphemy. And all the while, it's due to the fact they do not appreciate the cross. It, it can be tempting for us, can it not, to do what they in Galatia did, to give up the cross and thus do away with the persecution. But if we do so, we make a fatal mistake. We make a mistake that in fact drives us from the God who loves us and takes away the opportunity for us to enjoy forgiveness of sin. We're admonished time and again to not make that same mistake, but rather like Paul to understand that persecution may be our lot, and such it is. For did he not say, Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. There may well be inconveniences and unpleasantries that come our way because of our allegiance to the cross. That same song to which I referred earlier has words like this in it, By the cross of Christ I'll take my stand. Are those the feelings of your heart this morning? Are they the feelings of my heart? The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. We've seen that cross presented through these four avenues this morning. We have seen the highlight scene that it is the power of God. We have seen it so powerfully set forth to us as the means of reconciliation. We have also seen that that old law was taken away by the way of nailing it to the cross. And now finally we've been reminded that the cross of Christ does have its obligations. We can't just be those who claim to have allegiance to the cross every now and then. Christ gave everything of Himself on the cross. He withheld nothing. 
He shed all of His life in His blood. And He demands the same of you and me. If we're holding back of Him, then we aren't right with Him. If we haven't given to Him our all, then we have not sacrificed to Him the way that we must. The cross demands everything of us just as it demanded everything of Him. There can be no middle ground. He said, either you're against me or you're with me. Matthew 12, verse 30. If we're not, in fact, on His side, we're scattering abroad. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter's famous words of Acts 4, verse 12. Today, in the analysis of our life, as we can see, the preaching of the cross is fundamental. How faithful are you and I to it? Are we, like Paul, ready to acclaim it as the power of our life because it's the power of God? Or are we in foolishness rejecting it? If so, we're guaranteed to perish. For so the Holy Spirit decreed. Today, what about your life? Are you a faithful member of the Lord's body? Have you turned to the cross with perhaps a tear flowing down your cheek, thankful for what Christ did there for you? Or to this point, have you ignored it, overlooked it, neglected it, seen it simply as an event that happened a long time ago and seems to be less than the full meaning that God gave it? If the cross isn't as meaningful to you as it should be, please think about the station of your life at this moment. Are things well with your soul? It is only in the cross that reconciliation can be had. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. And that word of encouragement is truly issued to you. For Christ is calling you, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. In the words of Revelation 3, 20 and 21, He stands at the door and knocks. He wants you to open the door and invite Him into your heart and into your life so that He can reconcile you to God forgive you of your sins, wipe the old law and all the things related to it so that you need not give thought to those matters of observance. And what's more, He also, of course, wants you to understand that He will be the close friend that will aid you and assist you through persecuting times and dark days. If you have never rendered obedience initially to the gospel invitation, why not today? The eighth day of July 2012 could be tremendously and eternally significant day for you. If you have done that and you've tasted all the blessings that Christ had to offer you, those, test, those tastings highlighted in Hebrews 6 verses 5 and 6, but you have wandered away from the fold of rightness. You've begun to live disgracefully and shamefully. You've ignored the lessons of the cross and you have portrayed to others the fact the cross is not what the Bible proclaims that it is. You need to make some changes. You need to make them today. There could never be a better day than this one. Why, why not come and let us pray with you and for forgiveness of those public sins? And we'd be honored to do that. If we could assist your help, we would only invite you to let us know and do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.